0: chapter 12 part 2 of south this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by corrie samuel south the story of shackleton's last expedition 1914 to 1917 by sir ernest shackleton chapter 12 elephant island PART 2. On one or two rare occasions they had fine, calm, clear days. The glow of the dying sun on the mountains and glaciers filled even the most materialistic of them with wonder and admiration. These days were sometimes succeeded by calm, clear nights, when, but for the cold, they would have stayed out on the sandy beach all night. About the middle of May, a terrific blizzard sprang up, blowing from sixty to ninety miles an hour, and Wild entertained grave fears for their hut. One curious feature noted in this blizzard was the fact that the huge ice sheets, as big as window panes and about a quarter of an inch thick, were being hurled about by the wind, making it as dangerous to walk about outside as if one were in an avalanche of splintered glass. Still, these winds from the south and southwest though invariably accompanied by snow and low temperatures, were welcome in that they drove the pack-ice away from the immediate vicinity of the island, and so gave rise on each occasion to hopes of relief. Northeast winds, on the other hand, by filling the bays with ice and bringing thick, misty weather, made it impossible to hope for any ship to approach them. Towards the end of May a period of dead calm set in, with ice closely packed all round the island. This gave place to northeast winds and mist, and at the beginning of June came another southwest blizzard, with cold driving snow. The blizzard increased to terrific gusts during the night, causing us much anxiety for the safety of our hut. There was little sleep, all being apprehensive of the canvas roof ripping off and the boats being blown out to sea. Thus it continued, alternating between southwest blizzards, when they were all confined to the hut, and northeast winds, bringing cold, damp, misty weather. On June 25th a severe storm from northwest was recorded, accompanied by strong winds and heavy seas, which encroached upon their little sandy beach up to within four yards of their hut. Towards the end of July and the beginning of August they had a few fine, calm, clear days occasional glimpses of the sun with high temperatures were experienced after south-west winds had blown all the ice away and their party their spirits cheered by Wild's unfailing optimism again began to look eagerly for the rescue ship the first three attempts at their rescue unfortunately coincided with the times when the island was beset with ice and though on the second occasion we approached close enough to fire a gun in the hope that they would hear the sound and know that we were safe and well, yet so accustomed were they to the noise made by the carving of the adjacent glacier that either they did not hear or the sound passed unnoticed. On August 16th, pack was observed on the horizon, and the next day the bay was filled with loose ice, which soon consolidated. Soon afterwards, huge old floes and many bergs drifted in. The pack appears as dense as we have ever seen it, No open water is visible, and ice-blink girdles the horizon. The weather is wretched, a stagnant calm of air and ocean alike, the latter obscured by dense pack through which no swell can penetrate, and a wet mist hangs like a pall over land and sea. The silence is oppressive. There is nothing to do but stay in one sleeping bag, or else wander in the soft snow and become thoroughly wet. Fifteen inches of snow fell in the next twenty-four hours, making over two feet between August 18th and 21st. A slight swell next day from the northeast ground up the pack-ice, but this soon subsided and the pack became consolidated once more. On August 27th a strong west-southwest wind sprang up and drove all this ice out of the bay, and except for some stranded bergs, left a clear, ice-free sea through which we finally made our way from Punta Arenas to Elephant Island. As soon as I had left the island to get help for the rest of the expedition, Wilde set all hands to collect as many seals and penguins as possible, in case their stay was longer than was at first anticipated. A sudden rise in temperature caused a whole lot to go bad and become unfit for food, so while a fair reserve was kept in hand, too much was not accumulated. At first the meals, consisting mostly of seal meat with one hot drink per day, were cooked on a stove in the open. The snow and wind, besides making it very unpleasant for the cook, filled all the cooking pots with sand and grit, so during the winter the cooking was done inside the hut. A little cerebus salt had been saved, and this was issued out at the rate of three-quarters of an ounce per man per week. Some of the packets containing the salt had broken. "'so that all did not get the full ration. "'On the other hand, one man dropped his week's ration "'on the floor of the hut, amongst the stones and dirt. "'It was quickly collected, and he found to his delight "'that he had enough now to last him for three weeks. "'Of course it was not all salt. "'The hot drink consisted at first of milk, made from milk-powder, "'up to about one-quarter of its proper strength. "'This was later on diluted still more, and sometimes replaced by a drink made from a pea-soup-like packing from the Bovril Sledging Rations. For midwinter's day celebrations, a mixture of one teaspoonful of methylated spirit in a pint of hot water, flavoured with a little ginger and sugar, served to remind some of cocktails and verve cliquot. At breakfast, each had a piece of seal or half a penguin breast. Luncheon consisted of one biscuit on three days a week, nut food on Thursdays, bits of blubber from which most of the oil had been extracted for the lamps on two days a week, and nothing on the remaining day. On this day, breakfast consisted of a half-strength sledging ration. Supper was almost invariably seal and penguin, cut up very finely and fried with a little seal blubber. There were occasionally very welcome variations from this menu. Some paddies, A little white bird, not unlike a pigeon, was snared with a loop of string and fried with one water-sodden biscuit for lunch. Enough barley and peas for one meal all round of each had been saved, and when this was issued it was a day of great celebration. Sometimes, by general consent, the luncheon biscuit would be saved, and, with the next serving of biscuit, was crushed in a canvas bag into a powder and boiled with a little sugar, making a very satisfying pudding. When blubber was fairly plentiful there was always a saucepan of cold water, made from melting down the pieces of ice which had broken off from the glacier, fallen into the sea, and been washed ashore, for them to quench their thirst in. As the experience of Arctic explorers tended to show that sea-water produced a form of dysentery, Wilde was rather diffident about using it. Penguin carcasses boiled in one part of sea-water to four afresh were a great success, though, and no ill effects were felt by anybody. The ringed penguins migrated north the day after we landed at Cape Wild, and though every effort was made to secure as large a stock of meat and blubber as possible, by the end of the month the supply was so low that only one hot meal a day could be served. Twice the usual number of penguin steaks were cooked at breakfast, and the ones intended for supper were kept hot in the pots by wrapping up in coats, etc., Clark put our saucepanful in his sleeping bag today to keep it hot, and it really was a great success in spite of the extra helping of reindeer hairs that it contained. In this way, we can make ten penguin skins do for one day. Some who were fortunate enough to catch penguins with fairly large undigested fish in their gullets used to warm these up in tins hung on bits of fire round the stove. All the meat intended for hooshies is cut up inside the hut as it is too cold outside. As the boards which we use for the purpose are also used for cutting up tobacco, when we still have it, a definite flavour is sometimes imparted to the hoosh, which, if anything, improves it. Their diet was now practically all meat, and not too much of that, and all the diaries bear witness to their craving for carbohydrates, such as flour, oatmeal, etc. One man longingly speaks of the cabbages which grow on Kogulan Island, By June 18th there were only nine hundred lumps of sugar left, i.e., just over forty pieces each. Even my readers know what shortage of sugar means at this very date, but from a different cause. Under these circumstances it is not surprising that all their thoughts and conversation should turn to food, past and future banquets, and second helpings that had been once refused. A census was taken, each man being asked to state— just what he would like to eat at that moment if he were allowed to have anything that he wanted. All, with but one exception, desired a suet pudding of some sort, the duff beloved of sailors. Macklin asked for many returns of scrambled eggs on hot-buttered toast. Several voted for a prodigious Devonshire dumpling, while Wilde wished for any old dumpling so long as it was a large one. The craving for carbohydrates, such as flour and sugar, and for fats, was very real. Marston had with him a small penny cookery book. From this he would read out one recipe each night, so as to make them last. This would be discussed very seriously, and alterations and improvements suggested, and then they would turn into their bags to dream of wonderful meals that they could never reach. The following conversation was recorded in one diary. Wild, do you like doughnuts? McIlroy, rather. Wild, very easily made, too. I like them cold with a little jam. McIlroy, not bad, but how about a huge omelette? Wild, fine. With a deep sigh. Overhead, two of the sailors are discussing some extraordinary mixture of hash, apple sauce, beer, and cheese. Marsden is in his hammock, reading from his penny cookery book. Farther down, someone eulogizes Scotch shortbread. Several of the sailors are talking of spotted dog, sea pie, and lockharts with great feeling. Someone mentions nut food, whereat the conversation becomes general, and we all decide to buy one pound's worth of it as soon as we get to civilization and retire to a country house to eat it undisturbed. At present, we really mean it too. Midwinter's Day, the great polar festival was duly observed. A magnificent breakfast, of sledging ration hooch, full strength and well boiled to thicken it, with hot milk was served. Luncheon consisted of a wonderful pudding, invented by Wilde, made of powdered biscuit boiled with twelve pieces of mouldy nut food. Supper was a very finely cut seal hooch, flavoured with sugar. After supper they had a concert, accompanied by Hussey on his indispensable banjo. This banjo was the last thing to be saved off the ship before she sank, and I took it with us as a mental tonic. It was carried all the way through with us, and landed on Elephant Island practically unharmed, and did much to keep the men cheerful. Nearly every Saturday night such a concert was held, when each one sang a song about some other member of the party. If that one objected to some of the comments, a worse one was written for the next week. The Cook who had carried on so well and for so long, was given a rest on August 9th, and each man took it in turns to be cook for one week. As the cook and his mate had the privilege of scraping out the saucepans, there was some anxiety to secure the job, especially amongst those with the larger appetites. The last of the methylated spirit was drunk on August 12th, and from then onwards the king's health, sweethearts and wives, and, the boss and crew of the cared, drunk in hot water and ginger every Saturday night. The penguins and seals, which had migrated north at the beginning of winter, had not yet returned, or else the ice foot, which surrounded the spit to a thickness of six feet, prevented them from coming ashore, so that food was getting short. Old seal bones, that had been used once for a meal and then thrown away, were dug up and stewed down with sea-water. Penguin carcasses were treated likewise. Limpets were gathered from the pools disclosed between the rocks below high tide after the pack-ice had been driven away. It was a cold job gathering these little shellfish, as for each one, the whole hand and arm had to be plunged into the icy water, and many score of these small creatures had to be collected to make anything of a meal. Seaweed, boiled in sea-water, was used to eke out the rapidly diminishing stock of seal and penguin meat. This did not agree with some of the party. Though it was acknowledged to be very tasty it only served to increase their appetite, a serious thing when there was nothing to satisfy it with. One man remarked in his diary, We had a sumptuous meal to-day, nearly five ounces of solid food each. It is largely due to Wilde, and to his energy, initiative, and resource, that the whole party kept cheerful all along, and indeed came out alive and so well. Assisted by the two surgeons, Drs. McIlroy and Macklin, he had ever a watchful eye for the health of each one. His cheery optimism never failed, even when food was very short and the prospect of relief seemed remote. Each one in his diary speaks with admiration of him. I think, without doubt, that all the party who were stranded on Elephant Island owe their lives to him. The demons of depression could find no foothold when he was around. And not content with merely telling, he was doing as much as, and very often more than the rest. He showed wonderful capabilities of leadership, and more than justified the absolute confidence that I placed in him. Hussy, with his cheeriness and his banjo, was another vital factor in chasing away any tendency to downheartedness. Once they were settled in their hut, the health of the party was quite good. Of course, they were all a bit weak. Some were light-headed, all were frost-bitten, and others, later, had attacks of heart failure. Blackborough, whose toes were so badly frost-bitten in the boats, had to have all five amputated while on the island. With insufficient instruments, and no proper means of sterilizing them, the operation, carried out as it was in a dark, grimy hut with only a blubber stove to keep up the temperature, and with an outside temperature well below freezing, "'Speaks volumes for the skill and initiative of the surgeons. "'I am glad to be able to say that the operation was very successful, "'and after a little treatment ashore, "'very kindly given by the Chilean doctors at Punta Arenas, "'he has now completely recovered and walks with only a slight limp. "'Hudson, who developed bronchitis and hip disease, "'was practically well again when the party was rescued. "'All trace of the severe frostbite suffered in the boat journey had disappeared, though traces of recent superficial ones remained on some. All were naturally weak when rescued, owing to having been on such scanty rations for so long, but all were alive and very cheerful thanks to Frank Wilde. August 30th, 1916 is described in their diaries as a day of wonders. Food was very short, only two days' seal and penguin meat being left and no prospect of any more arriving. The whole party had been collecting limpets and seaweed to eat with the stewed seal-bones. Lunch was being served by Wilde, Hurley and Marston waiting outside to take a last long look at the direction from which they expected the ship to arrive. From a fortnight after I had left, Wilde would roll up his sleeping-bag each day with the remark, Get your things ready, boys, the boss may come to-day and sure enough one day the mist opened and revealed the ship for which they had been waiting and longing and hoping for over four months Marsden was the first to notice it and immediately yelled out ship-o the inmates of the hut mistook it for a call of lunch-o so took no notice at first soon however we heard him pattering along the snow as fast as he could run and in a gasping anxious voice Hoarse with excitement, he shouted, "'Wild! There's a ship! Hadn't we better light a flare?' We all made one dive for our narrow door. Those who could not get through tore down the canvas walls in their hurry and excitement. The hooshpot, with our precious limpets and seaweed, was kicked over in the rush. There, just rounding the island which had previously hidden her from our sight, we saw a little ship flying the Chilean flag. We tried to cheer, but excitement had gripped our vocal cords. Macklin had made a rush for the flagstaff previously placed in a most conspicuous position on the ice-slope. The running gear would not work, and the flag was frozen into a solid, compact mass, so he tied his jersey to the top of the pole for a signal. Wilde put a pick through our last remaining tin of petrol, and soaking coats, mitts, and socks with it, carried them to the top of Penguin Hill at the end of our spit and soon they were ablaze. Meanwhile most of us had gathered on the foreshore, watching with anxious eyes for any signs that the ship had seen us, or for any answering signals. As we stood and gazed she seemed to turn away as if she had not seen us. Again and again we cheered, though our feeble cries could certainly not have carried so far. Suddenly she stopped, a boat was lowered and we could recognize Sir Ernest's figure as he climbed down the ladder. Simultaneously we burst into a cheer, and then one said to the other, Thank God the boss is safe, for I think that his safety was of more concern to us than was our own. Soon the boat approached near enough for the boss, who was standing up in the bows, to shout to Wilde, Are you all well? To which he replied, All safe, all well and we could see a smile light up the boss's face as he said, Thank God. Before he could land he threw ashore a handful of cigarettes and tobacco, and these the smokers, who for two months had been trying to find solace in such substitutes as seaweed, finely chopped pipe-bowls, seal-meat, and senegrass, grasped greedily. Blackborough, who could not walk, had been carried to a high rock and propped up in his sleeping-bag so that he could view the wonderful scene. Soon we were tumbling into the boat, and the Chilean sailors laughing up at us seemed as pleased at our rescue as we were. Twice more the boat returned, and within an hour of our first having sighted the boat we were heading northwards to the outer world from which we had had no news since October 1914, over twenty-two months before. We are like men awakened from a long sleep. We are trying to acquire suddenly the perspective which the rest of the world has acquired gradually through two years of war. There are many events which have happened of which we shall never know. Our first meal, owing to our weakness and the atrophied state of our stomachs, proved disastrous to a good many. They soon recovered, though. Our beds were just shakedowns on cushions and settees, though the officer on watch very generously gave up his bunk to two of us. I think we got very little sleep that night. It was just heavenly to lie and listen to the throb of the engines instead of to the crack of the breaking floe, the beat of the surf on the ice-strewn shore, or the howling of the blizzard. We intend to keep August 30th as a festival for the rest of our lives. You readers can imagine my feelings as I stood in the little cabin watching my rescued comrades feeding. End of chapter 12, part 2